Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He's been in custody mm. on remand for over a year. You know, any delays would mean he'd be in remand for a long period of time before coming to trial. This is a man that there's a million euro bounty on his head from the Kinahan organisation. Dowdo looks like he's aged. Bags under his eyes. He looks really stressed. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. The trial of Jerry the Monk Hutch for the murder of David Byrne at the Regency Hotel has been put back for a few weeks after dramatic developments in the special criminal court. Hutch stepped into the dock hours after the court heard his neighbour and lifelong family friend Jonathan Dowdall has turned state witness against him. During his sentence hearing for the lesser charge of facilitating the Regency, evidence was heard how Dowdall is entering the Witness Protection Programme and has given a lengthy statement. Today I'm talking to Sunday World Deputy Editor Niall Donald and to Crime World producer Ian Mullaney about an extraordinary day in the Special Criminal Court. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So the monk looked really weird, unusual. I don't mean physically, but just his demeanour. His co-accused, Jason Bonney and Paul Murphy, were already in the dock because they're out on bail. And he arrived in with a sort of a plastic shopping bag, very hunched over, and sat down, didn't address anybody, and put headphones on his ears. Did you think he was listening to music or something and was not accepting the court or what? No, I mean, I, 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 I suppose um, you, you see people in headphones when, there's been, when they're getting proceedings translated sometimes. Mm. You see uh, people born outside the country. So it was unusual, all right. Um, I thought he looked edgy, uh, uncomfortable, um, you know. And it's, yeah, and it, like it's obviously, you know, we, we're used to seeing that jet black hair and the uh, yeah. uh, sort of trim looking... Uh, Jerry Hutch pictures, but he's, he's it's long to his. He, lo- he looks like he's been on a, a desert island nearly yeah, with long does. long grey hair. Yeah. But I mean, look, 
whatever happened in the Regency and all that, it must be an absolute shock to see somebody that you've known all your life uh, or to have known, and it's only a few days that this person was going to give evidence mm. against you in a court. And I think it showed on his face. Yeah, I think it definitely did. I, I think he had lost the confidence swagger that I've seen with him before. But look, he'll probably get it back. You know what I mean? That That is his nature and I think he will, you know, he'll probably dust himself off and as he gathers now with his lawyers, um, you know, they will plan, they'll come up with a plan of action, I suppose. It's only last week that these statements were given by uh, Jonathan Dowdall and yeah, Brendan Grehan SC, who's defending Hutch with ferry solicitors, um, he was actually attended the earlier hearing, the sentence hearing um, of Dowdall, and he was taking quite a few notes. So it's it's kind of all new to them what the, what's come in. Yeah, I mean, even the judges at one point said, which I think is unusual, it said the court know nothing about anything. So, I mean, it really is in the law, like, you know, it's, 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 I think that's very rare. I mean, normally statements are, are given and there's months and months ahead of something coming to court for, 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 a, for an actual hearing for trial. Um, but it was explained in court that, that it was the evidence was served on Jerry Hutch um, in, in, uh, I think it was just uh in two or three days ago, sorry, just in the middle, in the, towards the end of last week, um, a signed statement. Um, I think it was fifty pages, something like that. So, yeah, I don't, I don't. There, you know, you hear many times in in the world of journalism, you hear rumors and build ups to these things, but I don't think, I don't think that was anticipated or or or, or spoken about. Um, so, I mean, very three, ver- three women judges sitting in the special, which is. Um, I mean, look, it's happened before, but I suppose in such a high-profile case like this, so it's Justice Tara Burns, Justice Sarah Berkeley, and Justice Gronya Malone. And the lead judge, Justice Tara Burns, pretty much said that they've been kept in the dark. Yeah, I mean, she that's exactly as she said, that, the, the you know, but obviously this evidence is, has been finalised or this witness statement has been finalised at a very late stage. And um, so there was, today, Jerry Hutch, he didn't, the only thing he said was, uh, he, he shook his head at one point, but other than that, he didn't say a word today. I mean, the, the, it was anticipated a number of weeks ago that we would start hearing evidence and opening statements mm-hmm. and that. So, I mean, what today's hearing really was about was, um, you know, a lot about discovery, you know, is there further documents around the witness statement, around other evidence that's collected, is that being served to Jerry Hutch's defence team? Um, and it was anticipated there will be a hearing next week to see if that's done. And then they were they were saying that they, you know, both sides seem to say that the, the case could go on in two weeks, could yeah. begin, you know. And obviously the reason for that, look, there's many reasons and a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. But uh, again, Justice Tara's Bur- Tara Burns did say to them that if they weren't going to go ahead with the trial, that there was going to be an extremely long wait uh, before they could get it on again because the special criminal court is full up. It's it's booked out. Uh, there's two of them running and uh, there's, there's loads of trials set in. Um, so she's told them, I think, both sides to focus the minds and in other words, to sort of maybe try and work out whether it is possible to go ahead while this, because this time is set aside for this trial. Yeah, and I mean, I think the 
Jerry Hutch's defence on a couple of occasions mentioned the fact that he um, is in he's been in in custody mm. on remand for over a year, and you know any delays would mean he'd be in remand for a long period of time before coming to trial, and that the other two defendants um, were at, on bail, which was you know which is a reality. I mean, it, it was unusual because there was high security, lots of guardy, lots of prison. Uh, Irish prison staff there a kind of a tense atmosphere and then the other two guys just walked in and and walked into the witness box uh, uh, Jason Bonney and Mr Murphy you know so it was kind of unusual uh, in, in the sense that you know, obviously, they I were, hadn't seen them before. They were sitting in the body of the court. I thought they were just punters that were in to have a look. They're men in their in their sorry, fifties, is it or late fifties? You know, they're contemporaries of of yeah. Jerry Hutch's, and you know, yeah, they, they walked into court in the middle of this this thing in in uh, wearing jeans and stuff Slightly like that. Baffled looking, really, with the amount of journalists that were there, the whole place. There's actually yeah. an overflow court has been assigned if the trial goes ahead, because such will be the level of publicity around it, and probably members of the public would like to attend. I don't know whether that's going to be allowed because there's quite heavy security even getting in. You know, we all have to produce ID, give our names, details and bags are searched if they need to um, going in because, you know, look, this is a man that there's a million euro bounty on his head from the Kinahan organisation. Yeah, I mean, it's look, he's, he, the, his reputation precedes him, absolutely, you know. Um, but, you know, there was, there was obviously evidence given that the People are hopeful this trial will proceed. Um, but there was also, I mean, it was a very underwhelming moment where a null prosequee was mm. was was declared in the court um, regarding to uh, Jonathan Dowdle. And the he was obviously on... That was for the murder charge. That was for the murder charge. He's, he's pleaded guilty to a lesser charge, but it was a very sort of underwhelming moment to hear that that... that, that uh, murder charge will not proceed. A null prosequi. Uh, how's your Latin, Nicola? Not good, but it means basically they've dropped the charge, doesn't it? And I don't know, it sort of slipped in because it was Sean Galan, uh, Senior Counsel for the State, that sort of I was expecting that to be the moment of the case, but it kind of came in as they were sort of toing and froing about him being in custody, how long, you know, whether this was going to go ahead or not, and it was just sort of slipped in. Yeah, I mean, it's an old prosecutor is is that there is no prosecution effectively, yeah. but it doesn't mean that he's been found not guilty either. Yeah. You know, it's, it's you know, in theory, a charge could be brought again mm. in theory, in a theory, um, but it's not going to be. Um, so, you know, it was, it was, there was a few interesting moments where, um, um, you know, the the judge uh, questioned if all the uh, evidence had been given to, uh, been given to Jerry Hutch's team, and Jerry Hutch's team uh, legal team spoke and said, "Yes, we we believe it has." And the prosecution stood up and, and sort of said, "Well, what he actually said was, let's not get ahead of ourselves." Yeah. So that you know, and he wasn't. What Dowdle might have more to say. He might have more to say, or there may be more evidence that arises due to his witness statement. You know, I don't know. But that was another interesting moment to see that, you know, it's rare that these things, when they get to court, there's always a, a long, long build-up. Mm-hmm. And to see something it really in a state of a state of flux at that moment, I thought, was 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 very interesting, you know? So the... Um the, the Byrne family, Sadie Byrne, the, the mother of David Byrne and her daughters, Melanie Johnson and Joanne Byrne, whose husband, Thomas Bomber Cabinet, they were there again. They were there this morning when myself and Ian sat through the sentence uh, hearing and they waited, obviously, for that 
you know, for the trial to start. So they're left in a little bit of the dark as well, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 very tense moments, I think, when you see, uh, which you always see in court, in all circumstances, when you have families um, of victims, which they absolutely are, and, you know, you have the... the you know the people accused of 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 crimes. You know, in a very very enclosed, um, enclosed space with a lot of guards. You know, it's yeah. it's always a sort of unnatural atmosphere in in a sense. You know, um, um, so it was interesting. Um, you know, Jerry Hutch is obviously, uh, you know, he's he remains in prison. The, actually, the only the only sign of life he gave was at one point where they said it could be just a mention date next week and yeah. Jerry Hutch doesn't need to be there and he said yeah he shook he agreed shook his head and said yes yes I don't need so to be there so he wasn't listening to music then well he wasn't <laughs> I don't know I'd say maybe look maybe he's listening to some gentle classical I, I don't know yeah could, yeah could have been you know ballads Dublin ballads yeah, I don't know but I mean um, uh, the Bugsy Malone team well look we will continue to attend and see does it get on or not and certainly the evidence heard this morning will interest you and we're going to hear this now it was an interesting morning in there wasn't it in the courts I mean we knew it was going to be an interesting morning but uh, so the courts are surrounded with security Um. I don't think I've seen quite as much of that before. I'm just trying to think maybe at the the last Regency trial before Patrick Hutch was the state issued the null prosequi, there was a lot of security there as well. Um, So you have security outside the courts, inside the courts and inside the courtroom. So it was about 10 o'clock, I think, when Jonathan Dowdall and his father Patrick walked in to the... um, the court, the special criminal court number 17 through the area where usually in a normal court the jury would come um, and obviously they were being protected. You could see the the police uh, officers, plainclothes police officers with them. Dowdo looks like he's aged, bags under his eyes. He looks really stressed. The father doesn't give much away. He just sort of sits looking at nobody, making no eye contact whatsoever. Yeah, very low profile. So anyway, it got underway and it started with a detective sergeant, Patrick O'Toole, getting into the witness box and Sean Galan SC for the state um, basically brought him through the proceedings. He asked him, had the two of them pleaded guilty last week in relation to these lesser offences for for Jonathan anyway, um, that they had facilitated a murder by providing this room in the Regency Hotel. And uh, we, we hear about that in detail a little bit later. But um, yeah, so he brought him through the, the events of the 5th of February uh, at the Regency. We have heard these details before, but they were very comprehensive there today, I thought. Uh, he talked about that there was this weigh-in happening on the 5th of February 2016, and it was in advance of an event on the 6th of February in the National Stadium, and it was a promotion of Irish and other boxers called Clash of the Clans, and Queensbury Promotions and Frank Warren got a bit of a shout out in the Special Criminal Court. I wondered to myself how he'd feel about that. Um, and MGM, of course, which would later go on to become MTK. It was a joint promoted event. Um, 
He said they had hired this Regency suite, which was just past the main reception. And at 2pm in this large room, the uh, a very large group of people had gathered and the boxers were getting up on the stage and getting weighed. So... Then he described our, and each time he's asking, he's asking the detective, Sergeant O'Toole, to sort of confirm the details of this. And, uh, you know, that's really always the way in court. Sometimes those witnesses don't speak much other than to say yes or, you know, no. It's, I suppose, an efficiency thing, isn't it, to get through the, the details and read it into the court record? Yeah, it, I guess it allows the, the senior counsel to say exactly what needs to be said and have just have it confirmed by someone who was. Exactly. In the know. Exactly. So he asked him that, you know, at 2.20 p.m., you know, did this Ford Transit come in um, the security gate of the hotel near Grace Manor, uh, which is a housing estate there beside it. He spoke about the man in the flat cap, Kevin Murray, who's the late Kevin Murray, was identified, and a guy in a wig dressed as a woman. Talks about the two of them, um, going through the hotel and towards a laundry room seen by eyewitnesses and staff captured on CCTV, proceeding towards the weigh-in and that the two of them are armed with handguns. Um, He described and asked the officer to confirm that at the time a boxer was just completing his weigh-in and a number of shots were fired. The man with the cap, he said, um, made his way down a corridor of the hotel following people who were running away. He talked about the chaos, really, that we've heard and in some cases seen some of that CCTV footage of what happens. He talks about uh, the Silver Ford Transit van pulling up at the hotel at that stage and three individuals dressed in Garda uniforms emerging and going into the hotel about how they began also to discharge their firearms and the panic is escalating as people are running towards the exit and the reception area. Um, Now again, and later on, Sean Galan. SC will say to the the officer that there was so much CCTV. There was seemed to be an unprecedented amount of CCTV in that hotel. Mm. Didn't he say there was? It wasn't only just in the kind of the main areas, but it was also in the corridors. It was in the corridors and also in the corridors leading directly to the rooms. Yeah. So which is pretty much normal. all covered. Everywhere was covered by it. So they've been able to trace literally all their movements. So then uh, Sean Galan SC put it to the the officer about you know, this CCTV capturing David Byrne running away from these scenes of panic um, about him doing an about turn before he comes to the reception, but then, you know, running towards the reception with the rest of the kind of the, the, the people who were there talks about tack one, as he's called, shooting him and him lying injured on the floor of the reception and tack two, who is the second unidentified individual in the Garda uniforms, jumping up onto the desk, having an interaction with a man who was taking cover on the other side of it, and then jumping down back onto the reception floor and discharging the weapon at the injured. Or It's not clear whether David Byrne is actually dead at that point or not, but he, he um, shot another few rounds into his, his body. That Byrne had died of six gunshot wounds, um, and was injured in the head and body. Um, now, David Byrne, the victim, was born on the thirteenth of February, nineteen eighty-two. Didn't realise that, so his birthday was 
coming up actually because it was of course the 5th of February he died. Um, he described the TAC team continuing to, to look around and then basically making their getaway to this van that's waiting outside. First the guards, the, those dressed as guards, got into the car, the van, and then the other two, the flat cap and the man dressed in the, in the wig, jumped into the van. It drove away towards Grace Park Manor Estate where it went from there to Charlemont uh, where the, that van was abandoned and burned out. Um, and Sean Galan talked about, to the, the officer, about these burnt out, as he called them, um, ammunition that was found in the van when it was the forensics went and that that ammunition they discovered was capable of being discharged from AK-47s. Clearly it's going to be part of the evidence in the bigger trial. I did think it was kind of interesting that um, the Detective Garda who was speaking there, he, he was quite clear that it was they were searching for someone even after the day, after David Byrne was shot that they when they sweeped through the hotel they were looking for someone. Yeah, definitely. He he agreed to that when it was put to him that they continued looking for somebody else. And of course, we know now after all these years and instantly really we knew they were looking for Daniel Kinahan or certainly that is the narrative of what happened that day. They weren't actually necessarily looking for David Byrne. I think that was almost an opportunistic murder of somebody close to him, but they were looking for, for Kinahan. And Kinahan, of course, was there that day. And, you know, in his opening, Galan said, or in in this sentence he- hearing, Galan did say that there was, you know, key members of the the, the organisation expected to be there. Um, do you know what I found interesting, though? Um, so all of that we kind of know, and I mean, you're hearing it again, each time in a little bit more detail, I suppose. But what I found interesting was when he spoke about this, obviously a statement that has been put to this sentence hearing from a DS, Detective Sergeant Gallagher, um, who I suspect is with the Drugs and Organised Crime Unit and talks about this statement is obviously about the Hutch organisation. Now, I don't think we have previously heard details of that. And it talks about the structure of the Hutch organisation, describing it as being a strong intergenerational family grouping with bonds and trust. I mean, the Hutch organised crime group has been, it has been named before as an organised crime group in the courts, but I definitely don't think I've heard that evidence been read into a court of law before. What kind of difference do you think it makes to to have that read into the court? It just always makes a difference because it strengthens the narrative that you have as a journalist because you can then lean on, you're not just saying it yourself, but you can lean on it that it has been read officially into court records. It was like that time when the, I think it was during a Criminal Assets Bureau case and it was the first time Daniel Kinahan had been linked or named as the leader of the Kinahan Organised Crime Group. And for years you'd been sort of saying it and if you're challenged, how do you know that? And you can't really quite properly describe how you know that because it's a culmination of, um, you know, information probably from places a journalist shouldn't be getting it. But when it has officially been read into the court, it just establishes it more as a fact, I think. So, um, but that's all. So maybe it's a bit like train spottery journalisty finding that bit interesting. I don't know. Um, now, really, this whole sentence 
hearing centred really around this room in the hotel and it's room 2104. So we'll try and get the details right between us because it was quite a lot. There was a fair bit in it. There was a fair bit in it. So Patrick Dowdall rang and reserved the room on and used his credit card to book it. That's the father of Jonathan Dowdall. So when the investigation started and the Gardaí got a manifest of everybody that was staying in the hotel that day, this was after the murder, they actually rang and a male answered the phone from this in relation to this particular room. And it was Dowdall. And he admitted he booked the room, but actually said he'd cancelled it. Now, that didn't stack up because what the court heard today was that... Um, that Patrick Dowdall had arrived at the hotel at 7.20pm on the 4th of February, that's the night before the murder, that he had paid for the room in cash and that he had taken two key cards, that he'd taken a lift and gone up to the room, entered it, but didn't stay very long and came back out of the hotel. Yeah, and he filled out a registration, I think, when he arrived as well. With a few little details wrong. Mm. The address and the mobile phone number, it was described, they were very slightly different. You know, a mobile phone number that's very slightly wrong is very seriously wrong, isn't it? it is. <laughs> you can, there's no room for mistakes. There's not, there's not. Um, if you give your neighbour's address, they probably know where you live, but definitely a mobile is, is a bit of a different story. So now, what happened next was he... Yes, the court heard that Jonathan Dowdall used a phone that pinged off a mast near that. So he had actually dropped the father to the hotel. Yeah, to pick up the key cards. To pick up the key cards. Okay. Then they went and met another person. After the father came out of the hotel, the two of them went and met another per person who's not identified, but we were told they handed the key cards to him. And all we were told was that this person was a member of the Hutch organisation. Mm -hmm. So, the next event that happens is Kevin Murray, a.k.a. Flat Cap, arrives at the hotel that evening in a taxi and he walks straight through reception and up to the room. He doesn't need to check in at the reception because he has a key, basically. Yep. And he goes to the room and the following morning at 10am, he comes down to reception. He's holding a heavy green bag or a heavy green hold-all. He goes into the lobby and he waits and a taxi comes for him at 10.30am where he's dropped into the north inner city by this taxi and he then goes to another location. By 11.20am, the morning of the 5th of February, we're told that he's in company of another male and they're in an as yet unidentified property where a number of vehicles were circling and these vehicles were described as being used in the, the Regency Hotel attack. Yeah, they were circling around this property that so far we don't know where that is. We don't know where that is. So the court was next told that on the 7th of March, Jonathan Dowdall uh, was in the north inner city and he met a person who, uh, yes, who the keys had been given to, they said. So it's the same individual. Mm. Now this time we do know who the individual is because he drove with that individual to the north of Ireland and we were told that the car they were in was under surveillance. It had a surveillance warrant. In other words, it was being bugged. Yeah, and it was, I think, Dowdall's car. I think it was Dowdall's car, exactly. So that individual is the same individual that had been given the key cards. Mm. Okay. 
because of course they don't name them, so you're kind of putting two and two together, but I think we're right there now. So that was Hutch himself, Jerry Hutch. I'm sure of that because I know that they, they have this, I know that Jerry Hutch travelled to the north of Ireland with um, Jonathan Dowdall in a car and that it was bugged, so I know that's him they're talking about there. Um, and it was around that time, that time in March, because two days later, and this is mentioned today in the in the court, another man is arrested and three assault rifles are found in the back of that car. Now, that was a guy called Shane Rowan, who we'd never heard very much of. He pleaded guilty, went in and out of the courts very quickly. He was a guy from Donegal that was caught basically with those assault rifles. I mean, those assault rifles were, were very, you know, it was very important to the police to get those back at that stage. Um and to take them into custody, basically, and, and to put them through ballistics, etc. But they really got them quick, mm. you know, and they had to get them when they were on the move. They were, I think, they were very, you know, desperate to get those assault rifles back up to the north and out of their hands. They were red hot, you know. Um, but, so the, 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 the court then heard just about the uh, previous convictions that Patrick and Jonathan Dowdall have. And of course, they both have these very serious convictions for the imprisonment uh, and threats to kill uh, an individual in 2015. They were jailed for that assault in, in 2017. And that's the one we've been writing about. The victim was a guy who was trying to buy a motorbike and went to the house, was weirdly invited for dinner by Jonathan Dowdall to the house. <laughs> I've never been invited for dinner uh, <laughs> by anyone I'm trying to buy something off on done deal. But anyway, he went and they waterboarded him, as we heard, and very serious violent attack. So they both did time for that. Now, Patrick Dowdall got eight years, was reduced to six on appeal, and Jonathan got 12, reduced to 10 on appeal. So then Michael O'Higgins, who's the senior counsel representing Jonathan Dowdall, got to his feet to describe basically his client. And of course, ultimately, the whole point of all this is that Jonathan Dowdall and Patrick Dowdall don't want to spend another day in prison. Mm -hmm. Um, But the real information came at this point because... O'Higgins basically gave us a little bit of an insight into Dowdall and how he knew the Hutches. And he told us that uh, he'd lived all his life in the north inner city, that his mother was a market trader and she'd sold clothes from a pram. Now, I thought that was real um, grim sounding. I mean, talk about trying to eke a living. She lived, the mother lived next to Jerry. Hutch and his wife and she became very close his mother so Dowdall's mother became very close to Jerry Hutch's wife Um, and he himself Dowdall became close to Patsy Hutch now Michael O'Higgins described him a few times as Patrick Mm. which would be a younger generation but he was corrected and and told that was Patsy Um, so the families were close and they said that in 2007, Jonathan Dowdall set up this electrical services uh, company, which was hugely successful and was working in banks and in blue chip companies. Um, and government departments. And government departments, yeah. And he was employing local guys. He was giving them apprenticeships. If he couldn't employ them, he was kind of, you know, asking someone else to give them a yeah. 
And he had, I think, 20 people employed at, at peak. Yeah, so it was like seriously successful. Mm. I suppose 2007. 2007, was everything not going wrong then? That's, <laughs> I guess that's why you need blue chip clients. <laughs> the rest of us. Um, so he told us that, that Dowdall had four, has four children who are between the ages of 11 and 25 now. Um, and he owns his house, but he has a mortgage on it. Uh, he paid for his children to be privately educated. He wanted them to have a kind of better chance than he did, is how he was described. And and as a local man, very invested in his local community and trying to give kids within that community a kind of a leg up in life. But in 2007, um, his mother wasn't doing as well. Her, she was borrowing money from, well, Patsy Hutch, from my notes. Yeah, from Patsy Hutch. She seemed to be providing a, a, a 20,000 euro loan. To her. And she needed that because her she couldn't repay for her stock or obviously the second, you know, the, the close out of prams wasn't doing as well as the uh, the electrics company. But she had borrowed that. Jonathan Dowdall, uh, Michael O'Higgins said, tried to pay back. She couldn't repay the money back. But Jonathan tried to. He offered a thousand a month which was refused. Now, this is all a little bit woolly, I thought, Ian. Did you not? But they talk about, basically, the Dowdalls would pay for holidays on credit cards for unidentified members of the Hutch family. And this seems to be payback for these loans. And the Dowdalls' credit cards are used willy-nilly by the Hutches when they want to buy something. It seems to be, yeah. And... It's it's obviously an ongoing relationship because there is mention of how I think Jonathan Dowdall would occasionally take out three to five thousand euro loans from Patsy Hutch as well, while at the same time paying for holidays and trips and events and concert tickets and things like this. I got the sense. Well, I, t- I think probably there would be questions to be asked there about this, especially as this Jonathan Dowdall is going to go state witness. No doubt, um, you know, the defence will be raising questions as regards what happened. I would have thought, but anyway, that's just me. Um, Now, O'Higgins was insistent and the court accepted and Detective Sergeant O'Toole accepted that Dowdall was not a member of the Hutch crime gang. Um, and, And Detective Sergeant O'Toole also agreed that he didn't benefit from them. He knew them for 15 or more years. He sort of was described as doing things for them, um, but not being part of any criminal enterprises they were involved in. That's really what we were told by the court or or what the court was told. And there that kind of relationship was left. But this seemed to be part of the narrative as regards he's claiming that he knew nothing about what was going to happen in the Regency Hotel, that he had merely been asked to book a room on a credit card. Which was clearly something he felt he had to do many times or been asked to do many times and was therefore nothing out of the ordinary for him. Exactly. So so this is a, this is, we're, we're being told this is a normal thing to do because of the relationship between Dowdall and Hutch and this very strange kind of set up with the borrowing of money and the using of the credit cards. Um, now, O'Higgins points out and he does have a point, definitely, that there's lots of C- CCTV at that hotel that, 
you know, if you were trying to hide or if you realised that room was to be used as part of a criminal enterprise as serious as murder, would you have rented the room so openly? Um, you know, would you have used your own credit card, etc.? And um, they talked about O'Higgins put to the officer, and this is the first kind of time I've really heard this, that basically... Kevin Murray was being used as a ruse. They wanted it to look like this attack was happening because of the IRA and that obviously that the, you know, there was no one else involved but the IRA. He said that Murray was walking around freely around the hotel over that time. He wasn't masked or anything. At one point, he says he held a gun aloft mm. under a camera. Yeah. It seems like that must have been during the actual attack itself, but he was clearly trying to draw attention to himself. Yeah, it has to be. I mean, it wasn't detailed when that was, but I mean, it could hardly have been the night before when he was a guest in the hotel and he was... That would be very strange. It would be, it would be, but listen, everything about this thing is strange. Um, And Murray, I suppose, was obviously someone with a reputation, uh, someone that maybe would be recognisable as being with someone with paramilitary links. 100%. And that is what the state are basically saying that that, that, that's why he was used. And also kind of that's feeding into the narrative why Dowdall would have been tricked to renting this room in the hotel. Um, In actual fact, O'Higgins, and I have it there in my notes, said at one point he was used Mm. as as regards Patrick Dowdall because of his suspected links to the paramilitaries to the IRA and clearly Kevin Murray was as well. They're saying pretty much straight out that this was a ruse, isn't it? That this was... And one of the judges referred to it as a false flag. A false flag, exactly. I don't totally get that because I would have thought that whoever, and of course as Jerry Hutch is suspected of organising this Regency attack, but that they would have wanted to own it. I mean, I, I, there was that weird paramilitary thing, there's no doubt. I mean, sure, God's sake, after it, I was in the office the next day and this strange phone call came in. Somebody rang me without a code or anything uh, and said that they were from the Continuity IRA and that the IRA, the Continuity IRA had been responsible for the shooting. They said at the Red Cow Hotel, they said they tried to get Daniel Kinahan at that. They tried to get Daniel Kinahan in Spain, I think, and they tried to get Daniel Kinahan in the Regency Hotel and that they wouldn't miss the next time. But it was just some, like, no, there was no codes given or anything. It was just, there was so much crazy stuff happening, but certainly that call did come in. So there was all that suggestion of, and obviously, you know, with Murray and that, there was a suggestion of this kind of, you know, whiff of IRA going on behind it. Now, something I didn't realise before, when Gary Hutch died, Dowdall travelled with Patsy Hutch to Spain. Um, you know, he was very upset, obviously. His son had been shot dead. And, um, yeah, we were... So, obviously, the families were that close that, you know, they were called in at a time like that. You can only imagine how close they were. Um, he talks about Jonathan Dowdall, and about since his arrest, he indicated from the beginning his wish to talk to uh, the people that look after witness protection. So that was in November of last year, he told the police he was willing to make a statement, but he was in custody at the time. And logistically, I think they said it was difficult. But it was only in April of this year 
When he got bail. When he got bail, yeah. that he could be interviewed. Um, is it not under caution is what they said. So, Because I suppose, you know, like there is a process, as we know, mm. to get into the witness protection programme to be accepted on it. And in order to be accepted on it, you have to be interviewed quite a lot about, first of all, what you're going to be able to say, what your evidence is going to be, and also if you're suitable for it from a psychological point of view. And I suppose that would have been really difficult if he was in custody because it's not easy to have clandestine meetings with somebody. No, it's very obvious when you're in prison yeah. who you're talking to and why. And um, I suppose you just can't be protected in the same way when you're actually in prison as well. Definitely not. I'd say that was exactly it. So they had to wait until he got bail. Now, when he got bail, we were told he was interviewed by Angarda Siakona and there was a follow-up meeting during that period I have written down when uh, the information he supplied was checked. So in other words, whatever he has told the Guardi, they were able to go and stand it up in the same way we would, anything we were told. Um, and they have deemed him to be sincere and genuine. And those words were used by O'Higgins. Um, and he said he's made a formal statement, but it didn't take place until last week. So he's only made a statement last week. Mm. And they talk about he is in the process of being accepted or going on to the witness protection programme. Yeah, I think um, Detective Sergeant O'Toole couldn't say very much about that. He said he was, he's not part of that yeah. process himself, so he could only kind of indicate that it was something that was happening mm -hmm. rather than give any kind of details about it. We could see that he was being heavily, they were both being heavily, uh, you know, they were they were under security in court, but from previous work we've done on the witness with Joey O'Callaghan, what we know is that they will be protected, somebody will be protected until that document is signed to go into witness protection. And at that point, when that document is signed, they're handed over to a totally different team of officers mm. who are working in a totally different area in, in the crime and security element of the witness protection. So, you know, look, we don't know who they were. We don't know whether that process is finished. He's certainly under massive security. Um, so it's it's kind of nearly a formality now for him to be um, handed over to the, the WP. Mm. And he'll be held possibly out of the jurisdiction and, um, you know, with his family. Mm. I guess the, the question, I suppose, and maybe what the defence in this case is, is looking to do is how do you manage that witness protection alongside the potential of a custodial sentence mm -hmm. at the same time? So if that's a difficult sort of knot to get through. Like, how do you give them an appropriate sentence for what they've done while at the same time allowing them into witness protection, I think? I mean, yeah. I mean, O'Higgins was looking for a suspended sentence, which mm. is sort of, you know, he was kind of admitting himself. It's slightly unprecedented, even though he was weighing back on previous cases. But, um, and, you know, it's all to do with somebody's health and various things like that. But he really is looking for this non-custodial suspended sentence from I mean it's a mess it is, it is a, a mess, mess. Yeah. I mean that's the one big takeaway I got from it it is such a bloody mess his it's not only him but it's members of his family that have gone are going into this witness security program so that includes his father his four children and his wife mm. 
that we know of or certainly that were mentioned in the in the court. I don't know whether there's there's further family members or whatever. Um, O'Higgins admits that the him signing up to this program means none of them will ever return to Ireland. Uh, certainly, if they do, it will be. You know, they'll be taking their their life in their hands. Basically, is what is what he was saying. He talks about the consequences of him signing up to this program being very grim. O'Higgins says he talked about uh, basically that his life has ended. I think he he said that a number of times. His life, as he knows it, has ended, and the same way the life the his life the life of his family members, as they know it, has ended. Um, but this is someone who is essentially a significant figure in his community, someone who's a businessman, who's like, uh, got has, very, a house. has a house, has yeah. lots of things going on here, mm-hmm. and, and he is essentially giving all that up forever if he does this. And he's doing it. He's doing it like, he looks like he's the way to the world on him, mm. I have to say. but uh, And of course, Michael O'Higgins did also tell the court about, you know, how that has affected him with his health. Now, both Jonathan and Patrick Dowdall are in bad health. Patrick Dowdall, the older man, born 1957, age 65, he says that he has suffered, uh, you know, the time in custody was very rough on him, he said. He has lifelong depression. He has uh, multiplicity of physical ailments, asthma, arthritis. He's on ventilators. He's had two mild strokes. Um, And he's now facing going back into custody. So he felt isolated and exasperated, I think he described it as before. So obviously, you know, that's a more um, stress on him, the idea that he's going back into custody, if he is. I think he said it as well that he felt isolated because of his age compared to the people around him in the prison, which yes. is a, a very fair point, I'd say. Absolutely. Um but Jonathan Dowdall too seemed to have quite serious medical problems, even though he's only 44 years old. Mm. There was a long list of ailments associated with him. He said he has had only recently serious spinal surgery, which was put off for a long time, obviously because he was in custody. Um, he says he's riddled with guilt. Um, he has developed extensive medical complaints, including what he calls high agitation, being beyond anxiety. He's very high colour, wasn't he? And does look very, very stressed, I have to say. Um, So for those matters and for for obviously the problems with the the witness protection, he described uh, Jonathan Dowdall's wife as being a rock They've known each other since they were teenagers, he 13 and she 15. She managed to cope on her own, O'Higgins said, when he was in custody in relation to the kidnap um, and, and that waterboarding incident. She coped very well. Patricia is her name. Uh, she went to see him five days a week when he was in prison. He said they were, they're closer than anybody could imagine. And, you know, without him, Without her, I think he, he was saying he has nothing, but she doesn't know would she be able to cope on her own with this witness protection situation if he goes back into custody. Yeah, I think also as well, um, he was saying that when he has been, when Jonathan Dowdall was in custody recently, she had the her own family around her. Yes, she had her, her father, father particularly um, to help and, and to be around, but 
if they're in witness protection somewhere else in some other country, then th- that support just won't be there. She'll yeah. be completely alone. And, and I think that's obviously something that she's very worried about. Mm-hmm. And of course, the three-judge court headed up by Tony Hunt, um, you know, they listened. They didn't give any opinion on all this. And they will be basically looking to the law to make this decision. They're not going to be you know, their heartstrings aren't going to be pulled as such. Um, You know, there is a reason for O'Higgins giving all these details because it does appear that in the past, things like uh, stress, anxiety, ill health, age, etc. have all have to be considered with with sentences. Um, I mean, look, it was an extraordinary couple of hours in the court because obviously... You know, it's only last week that Jonathan Dowdall made this decision, we've been told. Um, it was only last week that himself and his father went in, were, were whisked in and out of the courts under a veil of secrecy, really, to plead guilty, in Jonathan's case, to this lesser charge. Um, and it's all happened in a couple of days. And here he is sitting and we're told today, officially in court, that they yes, he's giving evidence and he's gone witness protection. Now, interestingly... Um, we were talking about it before we hit the record button, so we'll talk about it again when everyone else can hear us. Uh, it was that indication that the evidence, there's been other people named who aren't before the courts in his statements. Yeah, I guess that's a very, um, potentially very game-changing sort of development. Mm-hmm. We don't know now what he said or who he has implicated and implicated. really changed both the trial which is due to happen later this afternoon yeah. um, and any further trials that may people who are not currently before the courts may find themselves so yeah and you know the thing is um, I've like done a little bit of research into this witness protection thing I wouldn't claim to be an expert at all and uh, you and I both worked on the witness together with Joey O'Callaghan Joey O'Callaghan was a particular witness mm. he, he wasn't a convicted criminal he was never going to be charged. He had nothing to gain. So in a way, he was one of those witnesses that probably the judiciary like. Yeah. Um, Jonathan Dowdall, and while it didn't happen there, like that the state has issued a null prosecui on the murder charge, they obviously are going to because he's pleaded guilty on this lesser one. Jonathan Dowdall, we can say, has had a murder charge dropped against him. He has a very strong conviction there for a pretty lowbrow uh, assault on a guy who seems to have been a totally innocent man. I mean, he waterboarded him, told him he was in the IRA and that, you know, he'd want to watch his back for the rest of his life. He threatened to kill him, along with the father. And, uh, you know, you'd wonder how he will be viewed as a witness. Obviously, it is the, the defence's job to put forward this family man, businessman mm. figure, but as he, as Michael Higgins also said, there are two sides to the argument, and he's very aware of that. So he's just putting his best foot forward. But yeah. the the judges may or may not take that on board fully. You know. Mm-hmm. I mean, like in the past, the judiciary have been highly critical of the witness protection program, in particular where you have a witness that you know was part of something, and then maybe is seen as being treated more leniently because they're giving this. Um, evidence because they're seen as trying to save their own skin aren't they Mm. 
I mean, that's what it is, really. And that's why Michael Higgins, in this case, is going to such lengths to point that he's not saving his own skin. He's just choosing a different path, yes. essentially, that he's taking on a, a, an extremely sizable burden. Even if it's not prison, he is nonetheless giving up the rest of his life. And he is. I mean, it, it's definitely going to be, you know, you're looking at him there today. He looks stressed out of his mind. Um, he could have a long time to wait before he stands into that witness box and gives his evidence. And from the little bit I know about witness protection, the real stress starts when you're signed off it. When you got to live there on your own, when you don't have the protection anymore, when you don't have, I mean, there is that period of time when you're surrounded by cops and security and, and you're pretty aware that you're going to be looked after and kept alive because they want you into the stand. But um, then you have to, and that's the nature of it, you have to, you know, go it alone. You'll be given help to relocate to a different country. You'll be given help to have a new identity. You'll be given a liaison officer should anything go completely pear-shaped. But from witnesses who've spoken, um, including Joey O'Callaghan, you're just paddling your own canoe. And you really need to be mentally strong to face into that in the future. Now, in the case of Joey, he'd nobody. He had to go into it on his own because he was so young. So Dowdall, and from what we've heard from the courts today, does have his father and his family with him. So it's a slightly different scenario. But that cuts both ways, though. It does. You yeah. know, having to move the kids and find new schools and a completely different system. And mm. for them to to know why it's happening as well. They're old enough to know, to have a sense of you why it's happening. Like, you kind of do have to tell them. They're teenagers. You know? you know, they can read. Yeah. And um, it's just that insecurity then of the future because, like... From all we were told there today, I suppose, what they did try to paint was this kind of local North Inner City guy who'd done good. The mother reared him selling clothes from the back of a pram and he had become this very successful businessman, made a lot of money, bought a beautiful house out in, you know, in Cabra, educated each one of his children privately so they'd have a better future. And like in a moment, it's all screwed up for everybody. It just shows you how life can throw you a few curveballs, doesn't it? Because you use the wrong credit card to book a hotel room. Yeah. yeah. Now, in the court today, of course, and just need to mention that at the heart of all this, there is a victim, David Byrne, and his mother, Sadie Byrne, and uh, sisters, I think, were there. Uh, I think Joanne Byrne was there, whose husband, Thomas Bomber Kavanagh, is in custody in the UK. He got a very lengthy sentence for drugs and money laundering. Um, and there possibly was other sisters there. So they're obviously there to get justice for their brother and son. Um, you can clearly see that their grief is still very raw. Um, and the evidence given about the details of his murder was really hard to listen to like you know that he doubled back I mean you could just sort of picture it in your head it's that moment if he had to just kept going back he wouldn't have maybe he would have survived you know and he's the one out of the whole crowd that's killed um, he had no idea what he was running into no. in, that, in that reception area exactly exactly um, 
so yeah, that that's cruel and callous. And of course, they they will be now going into this trial that we're going back to, uh, which is supposed to be the start of the um, the case against Jerry Hutch. But I suspect it will be adjourned. I could be wrong. We're about to find out. So. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.